Mr. Cicilline. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Professor, Professor Feldman, let me begin with by stating the obvious. It is not hearsay when the president tells the president of Ukraine to investigate his political adversary, is it? It is not. It is not hearsay when the president then confesses on national television to doing that, is it? It is not. It is not hearsay when administration officials testify that they hear the president say he only cares about the investigations of his political opponent, is it? No, that is not hearsay. And there's lots of other direct evidence in this 300-page report from the Intelligence Committee. So let's dispense with that claim by my Republican colleagues. Professor Garrity, um, Professor Turley, notwithstanding what he said today, wrote on August 1st, 2014, in a piece called Five Myths About Impeachment, one of the myths he was rejecting was that impeachment required a criminal offense. And he wrote, and I quote, an offense does not have to be indictable. Serious misconduct or a violation of public trust is enough, end quote. Was Professor Turley right when he wrote that back in 2014? Yes, I agree with that. Okay. Now, uh, next I'm going to move to Professor Carlin. At the Constitutional Convention, Elbridge Gerry said, and I quote, foreign powers will intermeddle in our affairs and spare no expense to influence them. And in response, James Madison said that impeachment was needed because otherwise a president, and I quote, might betray his trust to a foreign power. Professor Cohen, can you elaborate on why the framers were so concerned about foreign interference, how they accounted for these concerns, and how that relates to the facts before this committee? So the reason that the framers were concerned about foreign interference, I think, is slightly different than the reason we are. They were concerned about it because we were such a weak country in 1789. We were small, we were poor, we didn't have an established navy, we didn't have an established army. Today, the concern is a little different, which is that it will interfere with us making the decisions that are best for us as Americans. Thank you, Professor. There are three known instances of the president publicly asking a foreign country to interfere in our elections. First, in 2016, the president publicly hoped that Russia would hack into the email of a political opponent, which they subsequently did. Second, based on the president's own summary of his call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, we know he asked Ukraine to announce an investigation of his chief political rival and used aid appropriated by Congress as leverage in his efforts to achieve this. And third, the president then publicly urged China to begin its own investigation. Professor Feldman, how would it impact our democracy if it became standard practice for the President of the United States to ask a foreign government to interfere in our elections? It would be a disaster for the functioning of our democracy if our presidents regularly, as this president has done, asked foreign governments to interfere in our electoral process. I'd like to end with a powerful warning from George Washington, who told Americans in his farewell address, and I quote, to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government, end quote. The conduct at issue here is egregious and warrants a commensurate response. The president has openly and repeatedly solicited foreign interference in our elections. Of that, there is no doubt. This matters because inviting foreign meddling into our elections robs the American people of their sacred right to elect their own political leaders. Americans all across this country wait in long lines to exercise their right to vote and to choose their own leaders. This right does not belong to foreign governments. We fought and won a revolution over this. Free and fair elections are what separate us from authoritarians all over the world. As public servants and members of the House, we would be negligent in our duties under the Constitution if we let this blatant abuse of power go unchecked. We've heard a lot about hating this president. It's not about hating this president. It's about our love of country. 
It's about honoring the oath that we took to protect and defend the Constitution of this great country. And so my final question is to Professor Feldman and to uh, Professor Carlin. In the face of this evidence, what are the consequences if this committee and this Congress refuses to muster the courage to respond to this gross abuse of power that undermined the national security of the United States, that undermined the integrity of our elections, and that undermined the, the confidence that we have to have in the president to not abuse the power of his office? If this committee and this House fail to act, then you're sending a message to this president and to future presidents that it's no longer a problem if they abuse their power, it's no longer a problem if they invite other countries to interfere in our elections, and it's no longer a problem if they put the interests of other countries ahead of ours. Professor Carlin? I, I agree with Professor, with Professor Feldman, and I should say just one thing, and I apologize for getting a little overheated a moment ago, but I have a constitutional right under the First Amendment to give money to candidates. At the same time, we have a constitutional duty to keep foreigners from spending money in our elections. And those two things are two sides of the same coin. Thank you. And with that, I yield back, Mr. Johnson. Gentleman yields back. Uh, Mr. Johnson. Thank you. I, I was struck this morning by the same thing as all my friends and colleagues on this side of the room. Chairman Nadler actually began this morning with the outrageous statement that the facts before us are undisputed. Of course, Everyone here knows that that's simply not true. Every person here, every person watching at home knows full well that virtually everything here is disputed, from the fraudulent process and the broken procedure to the Democrats' unfounded claims. And the full facts are obviously not before us today. Uh, we've been allowed no fact witnesses here as, at all. Uh, for the first time ever, this committee, which is the one in Congress that has the actual jurisdiction over impeachment, is being given no access to the underlying evidence that Adam Schiff and his political accomplices claim supports this whole charade. This is just a, a shocking denial of due process. And I, I want to say to our witnesses, I'm also a constitutional law attorney, and under normal circumstances, I really would greatly enjoy an academic discussion with you, a debate about the contours of Article 2, Section 4. But that would be an utter waste of our time today because as has been highlighted so many times this morning, this whole production is a sham and a reckless path to a predetermined political outcome. And I want you to know it's an outcome that was predetermined by our Democrat colleagues a long time ago. The truth is, House Democrats have been working to impeach President Donald J. Trump since the day he took his oath of office. Over the past three years, they've introduced four different resolutions seeking to impeach the president. Almost exactly two years ago, as one of the graphics up here shows, December 6, 2017, 58 House Democrats voted to begin impeachment proceedings. Of course, that was almost 20 months before the famous July 25th phone call with Ukraine's President Zelensky. And this other graphic up here is smaller, but it's interesting too. I think it's important to reiterate for everybody watching at home that of our 24 Democrat colleagues and friends on the other side of the room today, 17 out of 24 have already voted for impeachment. So, I mean, look, let's be honest. Let's not pretend that anybody cares anything about what's being said here today or the actual evidence or the facts. As Congresswoman Lofgren said, we come with open minds. That's not happening here. So much for an impartial jury. Several times this year, leading Democrats have frankly admitted in various interviews and correspondence that they really believe this entire strategy is necessary because, why? Because they want to stop the president's re-election. Even Speaker Pelosi said famously last month that, quote, it is dangerous to allow the American people to evaluate his performance at the ballot box. Speaker Pelosi has it exactly backwards. What is dangerous here is the precedent 
all this is setting for the future of our republic. I love what Professor Turley testified to this morning. He said, this is simply not how the impeachment of a president is done. His rhetorical question to all of our colleagues on the other side is still echoing throughout this chamber. He asked you to ask yourselves, where will this and where will you stand next time when this same kind of sham impeachment process is initiated against a president from your party? The real shame here today is that everything in Washington has become bitterly partisan, and this ugly chapter is not going to help that. It's going to make things really that much worse. President Turley said earlier that we are now living in the era that was feared by our founders, what Hamilton referred to as a period of agitated passions. I think that says it so well. This has indeed become an age of rage. President Washington warned in his farewell address in 1796 that extreme partisanship would lead us to the ruins of public liberty. Those were his words. This hyper-partisan impeachment is probably one of the most divisive and destructive things that we could possibly do to our American family. Let me, let me tell you what I heard from my constituents in multiple town halls and meetings back in my district just two days ago. The people of this country are sick of this. They're, they're sick of the politics of personal destruction. They're sick of this toxic atmosphere that is being created here. And they're deeply concerned about where all this will lead us in the years ahead. Years ahead. Rightfully so. You, you, you know what the greatest threat is? The thing that ought to keep every single one of us up at night is the rapidly eroding trust of the American people in their institutions. One of the critical presuppositions and foundations of a self-governing people in a constitutional republic is that they will maintain a basic level of trust in their institutions, in the rule of law, in the system of justice, in, in the body of elected representatives, their citizen legislators in the Congress. The greatest danger of this fraudulent impeachment production is not what happens this afternoon or by Christmas or in the election next fall. The greatest danger is what this will do in the days ahead to our 243-year experiment in self-governance. What effect this foolish new precedent, this Pandora's box, will have upon our beleaguered nation six or seven years from now, a decade from now, in the ruins of public liberty that are being created by this terribly short-sighted exercise today? God help us. I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Mr. Swalwell. Professor Turley is a former prosecutor. I recognize a defense attorney <laughs> trying to represent their client, especially one who has very little to work with in the way of facts. And today, you're representing the Republicans in their defense of the president. Professor, that's, you've that's said... That's not my intention, sir. You've said that this case represents a dramatic turning point in federal impeachment precedent, the impact of which will shape and determine future cases. The House, for the first time in the modern area, modern era asked the Senate to remove someone for conduct for which he was never charged criminally and the impropriety of which has never been tested in a court of law. But that's actually not a direct quote from what you said today. It sounds a lot like what you've argued today, but that's a quote from what you argued as a defense lawyer in a 2010 Senate impeachment trial. Professor, did you represent federal judge Thomas Porteous? I did indeed. And Judge Porteous was tried on four articles of impeachment, ranging from engaging in a pattern of conduct that is incompatible with the trust and confidence placed in him as a federal judge, to engaging in a long-standing pattern of corrupt conduct that demonstrates his unfitness to serve as a United States District Court judge. On each count, Judge Porteous was convicted by at least 68 and up to 96 bipartisan senators. Thankfully, that Senate did not buy your argument that a federal official should not be removed if he is not charged criminally. And respectfully, Professor, we don't buy it either. But we're here because of this photo. 
It's a picture of President Zelensky in May of this year standing on the eastern front of Ukraine as a hot war was taking place and up to 15,000 Ukrainians have died at the hands of Russians. I'd like to focus on the impact of President Trump's conduct, particularly with our allies and our standing in the world. This isn't just a president, as Professor Carlin has pointed out, asking for another foreign leader to investigate a political opponent. It also is a president leveraging a White House visit as well as foreign aid. As the witnesses have testified, Ukraine needs our support to defend itself against Russia. I heard directly from witnesses how important the visit and the aid were, particularly from Ambassador Taylor. These weapons um, and this assistance um, it allows the Ukrainian military to deter further incursions by the Russians uh, against their own against Ukrainian territory. If that further incursion, further aggression um, were to take place, more Ukrainians would die. Professor Carlin, does the president's decision to withhold from Ukraine such important official acts, a White House visit and military aid, in order to pressure President Zelensky, relate to the framers' concerns about abuse of power and entanglements with foreign nations? It relates to the abuse of power. Uh, the entanglements with foreign nations is a more complicated uh, is a more complicated concept for the uh, for the framers than for us. Professor Carlin, I think you'd agree we are a nation of immigrants? Yes. Today, 50 million immigrants live in the United States. I'm moved by one who recently told me as I was checking into a hotel about his Romanian family. He came here from Romania and said that every time he had gone home for the last 20 years, he would always tell his family members how corrupt his country was, that he had left and why he had come to the United States. And he told me in such humiliating fashion that when he has gone home recently, they now wag their finger at him and say, you're going to lecture us about corruption? What do you think, Professor Carlin, does the president's conduct say to the millions of Americans who left their families and livelihoods to come to a country that represents the rule of law? I, I think it suggests that we don't believe in the rule of law, and I think it tells uh, emerging democracies around the world not to take it seriously when we tell them that their elections are not legitimate because of uh, foreign interference or their elections are not legitimate because of uh, persecution of the opposing party. I mean, President Bush uh, announced that he did not consider the elections in Belarus in 2006 to be legitimate for exactly that reason, because they went after political opponents. Thank you. Finally, Professor Feldman, Professor Turley has pointed out that we should wait and that we should go to the courts, but you would acknowledge that we've gone to the courts. We've been in the courts for over six months, many times on matters that are already settled in the United States Supreme Court, particularly U.S. v. Nixon, where the president seems to be running out the clock. Is that right? Yes, sir. Thank you, and I yield back. Gentleman yields back. We will, in a moment, we will recess for a brief five minutes. First, I ask everyone in the room to please remain seated and quiet while the witnesses exit the room. I also want to remind those in the audience that you may not be guaranteed your seat if you leave the hearing room at this time. You have been watching the first public hearing of the House Judiciary Committee. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hearing, which first started at 10 a.m. Eastern, 
Getting a little contentious at times, three constitutional law experts called by Democrats made their case to impeach President Trump. The lone Republican-called expert, Jonathan Turley, argued that the evidence to impeach is, quote, wafer thin. Uh, let's talk about all this. Uh, Laura, let me start with you. I want to play some sound uh, from Congressman Radcliffe and Jonathan Turley that has been uh, retweeted by President Trump uh, as a game-set match. Uh, let us uh, l- listen to that sound. So if I were to summarize your, your testimony, no bribery, no extortion, no obstruction of justice, no abuse of power. Is that fair? Not on this record. That's a, that's a pretty assertive statement by Jonathan Turley to say no extortion, no bribery, no obstruction of justice, no abuse of power. It's odd because his 53-page opening statement and much of his testimony has not been that particularly assertive on that point. It essentially was hedging up till that moment in time, saying it's not that it's not there. It's that there's insufficient evidence to prove it at this point and that there's ample time for you to develop a sufficient record and go to court to get the order from the court to say that somebody, in fact, is obstructing justice in some way or stonewalling officially. So now he has that perfect soundbite, which is why it's been retweeted, that essentially says his whole argument was that you've got nothing here to big nothing burger. But he goes to great lengths, over 50 pages, to explain that he feels because bribery and the words quid pro quo were often used, that it's about whether whether or not there was a sufficient official act. Did the president of the United States have an official act? And that's what he's being pinged on. Now he's saying, no, 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 there's nothing to see here, folks. That's a bit disingenuous. And frankly, it belies the current record to say that there is nothing there. Now, he could argue sufficiency. That's different. But they have to be real about this point, Jake. The reason that there is a record that may be, as he calls it, wafer thin, is because people have been stonewalling and not providing evidence, not only from a testimony, Bolton, Pompeo and the like, Trump, also emails and also paperwork and documents. So to say it's insufficient, but I won't actually um, give credit to why it's insufficient is preposterous. Do you think, uh, Tim, that, that Democrats should almost call Republicans on, the, on their bluff in the sense that they should say, Okay, you think the case hasn't been proven, but your witness, Jonathan Turley, says uh, we should be calling more witnesses. Then let's agree. We'll we'll do two more weeks. We'll extend this two more weeks. But we all have to agree to subpoena Mulvaney, uh, Pompeo, et cetera. Absolutely. This is a great missed opportunity for Democrats and for all Americans. What the, the, the argument should be that an impeachment is such a serious matter that you want as much evidence as possible. And then it is not up to law professors. By the way, all, all four of them, did, they, they did really well. But it's not up to them. It's up to the members of Congress. This should be a deliberative process. What's really striking about what we've seen today is that, that the, this seems to be a repeat in, in spirit of the Clinton impeachment more than the Nixon impeachment. And that's because there's I don't think there's anybody there who has any experience of the Nixon impeachment, whereas in the Clinton era, some of them remembered the the Nixon impeachment, which is far more serious and it should be more deliberative. So, yes, what what uh, what um, Ambassador Eisen, who is the Democratic majority counsel, should have done is ask Professor Turley, Okay, Professor Turley, what would you want to know? Whom should we ask? And let me give you a reason why the Schiff report is magnificent. But there are gaps. They're not gaps that are helpful to the president. They're just gaps. It would be nice to have someone on the record say that they know for sure the president's mind when the suspension of aid happened. 
What they can prove is that, the, that, that there is a quid pro quo regarding a meeting in the White House. Not quite as easy to prove that there was a quid pro quo, quid pro quo about the security. Now, I can tell you that having studied presidents, I'm pretty convinced that it was. But you know what? The American people don't spend time studying presidents. They're not professors of public policy. Give them more data. And when Bolton says no, and when OMB doesn't hand over the documents, then at least the Democrats can say to the American people, we tried. We tried to, to connect those dots. But those are troubling dots as is. And, and just uh, moving on with that, uh, uh, building on that, what Tim just said, uh, Jen Psaki, um, in the House impeachment report that the Intelligence Committee put out, uh, Democrats on the committee, there is page after page. It starts on page 217, if you want to read a page after page of documents that they tried to get that President Trump, Vice President Pence, Secretary of Pompeo, the Secretary of Defense, the OMB director, et cetera, et cetera, refused to turn over. I mean, just dozens of these documents. And they could say, would, would you want to see this? Jonathan Turley, the Republican witness, uh, says yes. Um, and, and then... Well, then, then, then the Republicans are in, their, are in a tough spot. They, they certainly could. And, you know, there, is a, there was a huge opportunity that this report was put out yesterday. And that was a gift to Jerry Nadler, Congressman Nadler, Chairman Nadler. Obviously, it's a different focus of this hearing slightly, but there was a lot to work from there. Um, and I think he missed some opportunities to really hold Jonathan Turley's feet to the fire, to push on some of these questions, to hold some of his fellow Republicans um, to account on what you exactly just said, that there are the reason that we haven't had these um, these high level officials appear is because the White House has been obstructing them from appearing. They haven't been providing documents and they haven't. Let me just, let me just interrupt point. you for one second, because I, I want to just bring the, our viewers attention to the to the substantial list. Democrats have asked for documents related to that infamous July 25th call, the briefing materials prepared for President Trump by Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, notes related to the call from key players. The White House is also refusing to turn over the August 15th presidential decision memo prepared by Vindman, conveying that the aid be released. The NSC staff summaries of conclusions from meetings related to Ukraine, a White House review, records review of the hold on the Ukraine aid, which, according to The Washington Post, quote, uh, reveal extensive efforts to generate an after-the-fact justification. When it comes to U.S. Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, the administration won't turn over call records between President Trump and Sondland or emails and messages between Sondland and senior officials such as Mick Mulvaney or National Security Advisor John Bolton. The vice president, Democrats want to see materials related to the July 25th call that were put in Pence's briefing book that day. The briefing materials prepared for Pence's meeting with Ukraine's president on September 1st. The memo of the conversation from the Pence call with Zelensky on September 18th. This is a uh, small list, a small excerpt, but like they didn't talk about that at all at this hearing. And this is just I got from the report that they issued yesterday. Right. There was a ton of new information in that report. And they could have discussed that. There was no limitations on what they brought up during their questioning or during their public statements. And they really didn't take the opportunity to do that. Now, Adam Schiff and most Democrats feel there's a preponderance of evidence, as was written in that report, to impeach the president. But it doesn't mean they can't question why the Republicans in the White House aren't, are obstructing access for the American people to documents and witnesses and other people. But this isn't about, about just convincing House Democrats to vote, right? This is about convincing the country. Do you think this would have been more effective if at least one of those three experts were a conservative constitutional law expert who supported impeachment? Because they're out there. We've had them on my show. Sure. Obviously, look, that, that was kind of the, the, the line of tact of some of the questioning, right? That, 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 these, that these experts are all incredibly liberal. If you've seen what's been 
uh, where, what they've written, what they've made public statements about in the past. They're all not they're not centrist by any by any stretch of the imagination. Well, certainly Feldman and Carlin are liberal. I don't know if they said, well, yeah. said anything about Gerhardt. Oh, but. OK, but so, so uh, from, from where I sit. Right. OK. Like from, uh, they're, they're extremely liberal. So they didn't help their case at all by, by picking people who are kind of, you know, who are in, in, on the other team. I mean, it doesn't doesn't make the case any stronger. And, and, and as Tim pointed out before, we're talking about comedy and, and separation of powers. Some of those documents that you referenced, right, there are legitimate concerns and legitimate the claims of executive privilege, right? They're, sure, but they're, the White House said we're not yeah. giving you anything. But, but, right, and so uh, you, you have to go document by document. There's right. a exactly. process. There's a process by what that takes place, and it can't be done in a week and a half in time mm. to get, get get the hearing done. I mean, the, the White House has said, let us look at these things. We can't provide everything. This is like any major big litigation case. You have boxes and tons of files. You have paralegals going through things. Well, they, said, they, they, they said they're not going to cooperate with well, anyone. They weren't going to cooperate anyone, but, but okay. there's still legitimate concerns of executive There's privilege. 70, you know, this is, un- oh, sorry. Sorry, I was say, the, the, the big thing, though, you're, you're, that was the ranking minority member's real point there, right? There was the calendar and there was the clock, and that was the real reason why this was so urgent. But let's go back to the whistleblower complaint. I know one wants to bring it up, but the idea of what did the director of, excuse me, the inspector general for the intelligence community find? It was a credible and urgent threat. What have these constitutional legal experts been talking about? You need not wait until either an election or a protracted litigation. It is the prerogative of the House and Senate to actually impeach and or remove a president. And you do have an urgency, especially when the subject matter is about an upcoming election. And so you have that all right here and there. But I do totally agree. There are some missed opportunities. And when you could and when each member of um, the House Judiciary Committee could have pointed out the notion of, there is an urgency, and there's also a reason we can't wait for the courts, because it will be the result of long protracted, and there's an urgent matter going on here. They didn't address it. They didn't hammer it home, but they certainly could do so more. And the American people are well aware. If it's credible and urgent, you don't wait. I don't, I don't know if the American people are well aware uh, that there were, have been 71 requests. Yeah. You know, Jake just gave us a list, a short list, 71. This is unprecedented in U.S. constitutional history. Let me just interrupt for one second. You see uh, Noah Feldman Mm -hmm. uh, and Professor Mm -hmm. Carlin and Jonathan Turley all uh, talking there, even though they have uh, divergent views, different views on impeachment. They are uh, they have uh, at the table uh, treated each other uh, with respect uh, and even deference at times, uh, more so than uh, the members of Congress treat each other. I'm sorry, Tim. Go. And the reason this 71 matters is that um, 71 requests, requests for, for documents. But it was requests by, by the House for documents. The president has turned over not a single document. Richard Nixon, what he did was he played fast and loose. He wanted, what he wanted was to, the apparent, apparent compliance. But at least he understood that he had to comply constitutionally. He had to give something. He had to give something. Uh, this president doesn't believe he has to give anything. And that is a major challenge to our system. But I don't think the American people fully understand it because, frankly, they're busy. They have other things on their mind. Mm -hmm. This is where the Democrats and centrist Republicans, if they exist, should actually say, these are the holes. It's not a fishing expedition. These are the holes. Exactly what you were saying uh, earlier, Jake. And then say it and show show the American people, this is what we're looking for. And say to President Trump, we want you to have your chance to defend yourself. These are really key holes. He will say no, I suspect. But you at least make this clear. What's problematic now is there is the impression that it's the election that is rushing the Democrats and not the issue of how long we have to wait for the courts. That I understand. Who knows how long they can, t- they can take. But the point is, if the American people think that the rush is all about the New Hampshire primary 
and not about the problems of getting documents from the White House, they're not going to understand the seriousness of this. They're going to see it like a game. This isn't a game. It's supposed to be a serious, deliberative process that isn't supposed to happen very often in our history. And the Democrats have to show the seriousness and sadness that the Democrats showed in 1973 and 74. Look, they didn't like Nixon either, but they knew this was tough and that it's not a good thing to remove a president via impeachment and a trial. But sometimes you need to. I'm not hearing that from the Democrats. I'm yeah, hearing yeah, a little and, bit of glee and, and, and from t- some, yeah, and, and that's t- not helpful. And to Tim's point, I think it was reflected, and you see some polling now that shows that slipping, that the numbers have slipped, you know, it was kind of moving in one direction. And Schiff and, and the Democrats do the best they had at, at, at the president in this administration. Didn't make a dent. So that's not it actually. Didn't make a dent. Well, I just have to, Jenna, didn't. That's, okay, that's not actually accurate. It is accurate. how the polling It's still, has it's still gone, at it's, more than 50% it's still support around for 50. impeachment in, in, and removal. In, in, independence. In, it slipped a little from states, like 50% percent to 47%. Swing, still slipped. Independence in swing states where it matters. It's in the margin. doesn't matter. California, New in, York State. In, independent support for impeachment has jumped by almost 20 points since no. the summer. Since the summer. Since the summer. And look, what Democrats are looking at are a couple things on the political front. One is that Democrats have coalesced around support for impeachment and support for the handling of it. There's 90% of Democrats who support that now. Independents have moved to support impeachment, and it's still hovering around 50%. They're not delusional. We'll, we'll they don't it. think we'll it's going to be easy. We'll watch see how many Democrats vote when it comes to vote time. I, I, it's 90%. Yeah, I must say, though, I, I have we'll only at the table who feels a little bit um, odd about the idea that I know we have to show the deference this being a very difficult time in the country, but it is a constitutional obligation mm-hmm. that members of Congress have. So I understand wanting to convey the gravitas, but members of Congress should not feel as though they have to be apologetic about fulfilling a constitutional duty any more than the president should feel apologetic for exercising his own things. And I have to say, the impeachment process is very much, every bit as much about congressional impotence as it is about presidential power. Sure. And so if you have a separation of powers and co-equal branch of the government, both have to have the attitude of a clash of the titans. Otherwise, neither is a titan and other will stand alone. And finally, I know you and I had a, we were talking about this during the break. Did anyone else have a real issue with the fact that the leadoff question from some of these scholars was about what their campaign donations were about and who they gave to, as if these were fact witnesses whose narrative and lens would be judged by who they voted for? Well, Tim, let me ask you a question, because this is, what, the fourth impeachment proceeding for a U.S. president in the history yes. of the United States? Yes. Do you think that, I mean, as a historian, comparing it to the other three, do you think that the case has been made? Or is, oh. that, or is that outside your wheelhouse? <laughs> you can say it's well, outside I'm gonna, your wheelhouse. No, 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 no. Look, look I, um, I, what I've learned from studying these cases is that, is that you have to think in terms of an elected official to answer that question. Uh, law professors will have one standard, and elected officials will have another. I can tell you that the, the kind of impeachment I ever want to see is one that brings the country together and that heals wounds. That may sound ridiculous, but it happened. It happened in the Nixon case, and it happened in the Nixon case despite a lot of passion. People forget how hard it was for Republicans to vote against Nixon. It was very tough. And the Republican leadership only went against Nixon when the smoking gun transcript came out. But... They realized that the American people expected them to be constitutional jurors. And so they didn't say what they thought. They didn't say I'm pro-impeachment before the material was in front of them. They made it clear that there was a deliberative process. I'm sorry if I gave the impression. I didn't mean they were apologetic. I don't think but, but, that, no. but in any case, I'm not sure I'm hearing that. All right, let's listen in. Thank you. One of my colleagues wondered how this panel can opine as to the 
as to whether the president committed an impeachable offense. And the answer, quite frankly, is because you came in with a preconceived notion. You already made that determination decision. And I'll give you, a, for instance, until the rec a recent colloquy, several of you consistently said that the president said, during that July 25th conversation with President Zelensky, you said, the president said, I would like you to do me a favor. But that is inaccurate. It was finally clear in that colloquy, and I'm going to read it to you. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot. One of you said, well, that, that's because the president was using royal we. Here is the president's talking about the country. That's what he's talking about. It's audacious to say it's using the royal we. That's royal, all right, but it ain't the royal we. And I'll just tell you, when you come in with a preconceived notion, it becomes obvious. One of you just said, Mr. Feldman, you, it was you who said, and I, I'm going to quote here, roughly, I think this is exactly what you said, though. Until the call of July 25th, I was an impeachment skeptic, too. I don't know, I'm looking at an August 23rd, 2017 publication where you said, if President Donald Trump pardons Joe Arpaio, it would be an impeachable offense. He did ultimately... Uh, Pardon him. In 2017, the New York um, books, book review, review of books, Mr. Feldman, Professor Feldman said, defamation by tweet is an impeachable offense. And I think of the his history of this country, and I think if defamation or libel or slander is an impeachable offense, I can't help but reflect about John Adams, about Thomas Jefferson, who routinely pilloried their political opponents. In fact, at the time, the factions or parties actually bought newspapers to attack their political opponents. So this rather expansive and generous view you have on what constitutes impeachment is a real problem. This morning, one of you mentioned the Constitutional Convention, and several of you mentioned Mr. Davies, and you talked about the Constitutional Convention. And I, it's been a while since I re read the minutes, so I just briefly reviewed, because I remembered the discussion on the impeachment uh, as being more pervasive, a little bit more expanded. And on July 20th, 1787, it wasn't 1789, by the way, one of you testified was 1789. It was in 1787, July 20th, Benjamin Franklin is discussing impeachment of a Dutch leader. And he talks specifically about what he would anticipate an impeachment to look like. He said it would be a regular and peaceable inquiry that would have taken place, and if guilty, then there'd be a punishment. If acquitted, then the innocent would be restored to the confidence of the public. That needs to be taken into account as well. So I, I look also on a May 17, 2017 BBC article, which is a discussion about impeachment because President Trump had fired James Comey. Alex Whiting of Harvard said, it was hard to make the obstruction of justice case with this sacking alone. The president had clear legal authority and there was arguably proper or at least other reasons put forward for firing him. And yet, what we have here is this insistence by Ms. Gerhardt that this should be, that was impeachable. That is, that's contained in that article, refer you to it, May, May 17, 2017, BBC. What I'm suggesting to you today 
is a reckless bias coming in here. You're not fact witnesses. You're supposed to be talking about what the law is, but you came in with a preconceived notion and bias. And I want to read one last thing here, if I can find it, um, from one of our, our witnesses here. And it's dealing with uh, something that was said in a Maryland Law Review article in 1999. And basically, if I can get to it, he's talking about this, where we're being critical of lack of self-doubt and an overwhelming arrogance on the part of law professors who come in and opine on impeachment. That would be you, Mr. Gerhardt, who said something like that. I can't quite find my quote or else I'd give it to you. And so what I'm telling you is that is what has been on display in this committee today. And with that, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Uh, a little while ago, Mr. Gates asked that certain material be inserted into, record, into the record by unanimous consent. I asked for an opportunity to review it. We have reviewed it. The material will be inserted without, without objection. Uh, Mr. Liu. Thank you, Chairman Nadler. I first swore an oath to the Constitution when I was commissioned as an officer in the United States Air Force. And the oath I took was not to a political party or to a president or to a king. It was an oath to a document that has made America the greatest nation on earth. I never imagined we'd now be in a situation where the president or commander-in-chief is accused of using his office for personal political gain that betrayed U.S. national security, hurt our ally Ukraine, and helped our adversary Russia. Now, the Constitution provides a safeguard for when the president's abuse of power and betrayal of national interests are so extreme that it warrants impeachment and removal. It seems notable that of all the offenses they could have included and enumerated in the Constitution, bribery is one of only two that are listed. So, Professor Feldman, why would the framers choose bribery of all the powerful offenses they could have included to list? Bribery was the classic example for them of the high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of office for personal gain. Because if you take something of value, while you're, when you're able to affect an outcome for somebody else, you're serving your own interests and not the interests of the people. And that was commonly used in impeachment offenses uh, in England, and that's one of the reasons that they, spe they specified it. Thank you. Now, earlier in this hearing, Professor Carlin made the point that bribery as envisioned by the framers was much broader than the narrow federal criminal statute of bribery. I think the reason for that is obvious. We are not in a criminal proceeding. We're not deciding whether to send President Trump to prison. This is a civil action. It's an impeachment proceeding to decide whether or not we remove Donald Trump from his job. And so, Professor Carlin, um, it's true, isn't it, that we don't have to meet the standards of a federal bribery statute in order to meet the standards for an impeachable offense. That's correct. I'm sorry, that's correct. Thank you. Yesterday, Scalia Law Professor J.W. Verrett, who was a lifelong Republican, former Republican Hill staffer, and who advised the Trump pre-transition team, made the following public statement about Donald Trump's conduct. The call wasn't perfect. He committed impeachable offenses, including bribery. So, Professor Carlin, I'm now going to show you two video clips of uh, the witness testimony relating to the president's withholding of the White House meeting in exchange 
for the public announcement of the investigation into his political rival. As I testified previously, Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. By mid-July, it was becoming clear to me that the meeting President Zelensky wanted was conditioned on the investigations of Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. One more video clip relating to the President's decision to withhold security assistance that Congress had appropriated to Ukraine in exchange for announcement of public investigation of his political rival. In the, in the absence of any credible explanation for the suspension of aid, I later came to believe that the resumption of security aid would not occur until there was a public statement from Ukraine committing to the investigations of the 2016 elections and Burisma as Mr. Giuliani had demanded. Mr. Carlin, does that evidence, as well as the evidence in the record, uh, tend to show that the president met uh, the standards for bribery as envisioned in the Constitution? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, I'm also a former prosecutor. I believe the record and that evidence would also meet the standards for criminal bribery. The Supreme Court's decision in McDonough was primarily about what constitutes an official act. Their key finding was an official act must involve a formal exercise of governmental power on something specific pending before a public official. Pretty clear we got that here. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid that Congress specifically appropriated. The freezing and unfreezing of that aid is a formal exercise of governmental power. But we don't even have to talk about the crime of bribery. There's another crime here, which is the solicitation of federal, uh, of assistance of a foreign government in a federal election campaign. That straight up violates the Federal Election Campaign Act at 52 U.S.C. 3101. And oh, by the way, that act is also one reason Michael Cohen is sitting in prison right now. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, Mr. McClintock. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Could I begin just with a show of hands? How many on the panel actually voted for uh, Donald Trump in 2016? I don't Sh think we're of, obligated to say anything about how no, we just, cast just our show, ballots. Just show of hands. I, I will not. I, I, I think you've made your positions, Professor Carlin, very, the very clear. The gentleman will suspend and will suspend the clock, too. Um, I have you a may, right to cast a Excuse me, you may ask ballot. the question. Right, well, let me rephrase the question. How, how many of you clock supported? Clock is stopped for the moment. The gentleman may ask the question. The witnesses don't have to respond. How uh, many of you supported Donald Trump in 2016? Show of hands. Not, Thank you. not raising our hands Pro is not Professor, an indication of an answer, sir. Professor Turley, this impeachment inquiry has been predicated on some rather disturbing legal doctrines. Uh, one Democrat asserted that uh, hearsay can be much better evidence than direct evidence. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and others have said that the uh, president's responsibility is to present evidence uh, to prove his innocence. Uh, Chairman Schiff asserted, and we heard a discussion from some of your colleagues today, that if you invoke legal rights in defense of criminal accusations, ipso facto, that's an obstruction of justice and evidence of guilt. My question of you is, what does it mean to our American justice system if these doctrines take root in our country? Well, what concerns me the most is that uh, there are no limiting principles that I can see in some of the definitions that my colleagues have put forward. Uh, the, and more importantly, some of these impeachable offenses 
I've only heard about today. I'm not too sure what attempting to abuse office means or how you recognize it. But I'm pretty confident that nobody on this committee truly wants the new standard of impeachment to be betrayal of the national interest. That that is going to be the basis for impeachment? Well, that, that How many Republicans do you think would say that Barack Obama violated that standard? That's exactly what James Madison warned you against, right. is that you would create effectively well, a vote of no confidence standard in our Constitution. Well, then are, are we in danger of abusing our own power of doing enormous violence to our Constitution by proceeding in this manner? My Democratic colleagues been searching for a pretext for impeachment uh, since before the president was, was sworn in. Uh, on this panel, Professor Carlin called President Trump's election illegitimate in 2017. She implied impeachment was a remedy. Uh, Professor Feldman advocated impeaching the president over a tweet that he made in March of 2017. Uh, that's just seven weeks after his inauguration. Are, are we in danger of succumbing to the uh, maxim of Lewis Carroll's Red Queen? Sentence first, verdict afterwards? Well, this is part of the problem of how your view of the president uh, can affect your assumptions, your inferences, your view of circumstantial evidence. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, the evidence, if it was fully investigated, would come out one way or the other. What I'm saying is that we are not dealing with the realm of the unknowable. You have to ask. We've burned two months in this house, two months, that you could have been in court seeking a subpoena for these witnesses. It doesn't mean you have to wait forever, but you could have gotten an order by now. You could have allowed the president to raise an executive privilege. Let me, I, I need to go on here. The Constitution says that the executive authority shall be vested in a president of the United States. Does that mean some of the executive authority or all of it? Well, obviously there's checks and balances on all of these, but the executive authority primarily obviously rests with the president. But these are all shared powers. Uh, and I don't begrudge the investigation of the Ukraine controversy. I think it was a legitimate investigation. What I begrudge is how it has been conducted. Well, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, the, the Constitution commands the president to take care that the laws be faithfully enforced. That does, in effect, make him the chief law enforcement officer in the federal government, does it not? That's commonly expressed that way. Yeah. So if, if probable cause exists to believe a crime's been committed, does the president have the authority to inquire into that matter? He has, but I have to, this is where I think we would depart. I've been critical of the president in terms of crossing lines with the Justice Department. I think that has caused considerable problems. I also don't believe it's appropriate. That, but we often confuse what is inappropriate with what's in, impeachable. Uh, you know, many people feel that what the president has done is obnoxious, contemptible, well, let, let but contemptible is not synonymous with impeachment. Let me ask you one final question. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act that authorized aid to the Ukraine requires the Secretary of Defense and State to certify that the government of Ukraine has taken substantial actions to make defense institutional reforms for, among other things, for purposes of decreasing corruption. Uh, is the president exercising that responsibility uh, when, when uh, he uh, inquires into a matter that could involve uh, illegalities between American and Ukrainian officials? Yeah, that's what I'm referring to as unexplored defenses. Part of the bias when you look at these facts is you just ignore defenses. You say, well, those are just invalid. But they're the defenses. They're the other side's account for actions. And that's what hasn't been explored. The gentleman's time has expired, Mr. Raskin. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank the witnesses for their uh, hard work on a long day. I want to thank them especially for invoking the American Revolution, which not only overthrew a king, but created the world's first anti-monarchical constitution. Your erudition makes me proud to have spent a quarter century of my career as a fellow constitutional law professor before running for Congress. Now, Tom Paine said that in the monarchies, the king is law, but in the democracies, the law will be king. But today, the president advances an essentially monarchical argument. He says that Article 2 allows him to do whatever he wants. He not only says that, but he believes it because he did something no other American president has ever done before. He used foreign military aid as a lever to coerce a foreign government to interfere in an American election to discredit an opponent and to advance his reelection campaign. Professor Carlin, what does the existence of the impeachment power tell us about the president's claim that the Constitution allows him to do whatever he wants? It blows it out of the water. If he's right, and we accept this radical claim that he can do whatever he wants, all future presidents seeking re-election will be able to bring foreign governments into our campaigns to target their rivals and to spread propaganda. That's astounding. If we let the president get away with this conduct, every president can get away with it. Do you agree with that, Professor Feldman? I do. Richard Nixon sent burglars to uh, break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters, but President Trump just made a direct phone call to the president of a foreign country and sought his intervention in an American election. So this is a big moment for America, isn't it? If Elijah Cummings were here, he would say, listen up, people, listen up. How we respond will determine the character of our democracy for generations. Now, Professors Feldman, Carlin, and Gerhardt tell us there were three dominant reasons invoked at the founding for why we needed an impeachment power. Broadly speaking, it was an instrument of popular self-defense against a president behaving like a king and trampling the rule of law. It, but not just in the normal royal sense of showing cruelty and vanity and treachery and greed and avarice and so on, but when presidents threatened the basic character of our government in the Constitution. That's what impeachment was about. And the framers invoked three specific kinds of misconduct so serious and egregious that they thought they warranted impeachment. First, the president might abuse his power by corruptly using his office for personal, political, or financial gain. Well, Professor Feldman, what's so wrong with that? If the president belongs to my party and I generally like him, what's so wrong with him using his office to advance his own political ambitions? Because the president of the United States works for the people. And so if he seeks personal gain, he's not serving the interests of the people. He's rather serving the interests that are specific to him. And that means he's abusing the office and he's doing things that he can only get away with because he's the president. And that is necessarily subject to impeachment. Well, second and third, the founders expressed fear that a president could subvert our democracy by betraying his trust to foreign influence and interference, and also by corrupting the election process. Professor Carlin, you're one of America's leading election law scholars. What role does impeachment play in protecting the integrity of our elections, especially in an international context in which Vladimir Putin and other tyrants and despots are interfering to destabilize elections around the world? 
Well, you know, Congress has enacted a series of laws to make sure that there isn't foreign influence in our elections. And allowing the president to circumvent that principle is a problem. And as I've already testified several times, America is not just the last best hope, as Mr. Jeffrey said, but it's also the shining city on a hill. And we can't be the shining city on a hill and promote democracy around the world if we're not promoting it here at home. Now, any one of these actions alone would be sufficient to impeach the president, according to the founders. But is it fair to say that all three causes for impeachment explicitly contemplated by the founders, abuse of power, betrayal of our national security, and corruption of, of our elections are present in this president's conduct? Yes or no, Professor Feldman? Yes. And Professor Gerhardt? Yes, sir. And Professor Carlin? Yes. You all agree. Okay. And do are any of you aware of any other president who has essentially triggered all three concerns that animated the founders? No. No. And no as well. Uh, Mr. Chairman, it's hard to think of a more monarchical sentiment than I can do whatever I want as president, and I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Uh, Ms. Lesko. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Chair, I ask unanimous consent to insert into the record a letter I wrote and sent to you asking, calling on you to cancel any and all future impeachment hearings and outlining how the process... Without objection, the letter will be entered into the record. Thank you. Um, during an interview, Mr. Chairman, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, on November 26, 2018, Chairman Nadler outlined a three-pronged test that he said would allow for a legitimate impeachment proceeding. Now, I quote Chairman Nadler's remarks. And this is what he said. There really are three, there really are three questions, I think. First, has the president committed impeachable offenses? Second, do those offenses rise to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment? And number three, because you don't want to tear the country apart, you don't want half of the country to say to the other half for the next 30 years, he won, we won the election, you stole it from us. You have to be able to think at the beginning of the impeachment process that the evidence is so clear of offenses so grave that once you've laid out all of the evidence, a good fraction of the opposition, the voters, will reluctantly admit to themselves they had to do it. Otherwise, you have a partisan impeachment which will tear the country apart. If you meet these three tests, then I think you do the impeachment. And those were the words of Chairman Nadler. Now, let's see if Chairman Nadler's three-pronged test has been met. First, has the president committed an impeachable offense? No. The evidence and testimony has not revealed any impeachable offense. Second, do those offenses rise to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment? Again, the answer is no. There is nothing here that rises to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment. And third, have the Democrats laid out a case so clear that even the opposition has to agree? 
absolutely not. You and House Democrat leadership are tearing apart the country. You said the evidence needs to be clear. It is not. You said offenses need to be grave. They are not. You said that once the evidence is laid out, that the opposition will admit they had to do it. That has not happened. In fact, polling and the fact that not one single Republican voted on the impeachment inquiry resolution or on the Schiff report reveal the opposite is true. In fact, what you and your Democratic colleagues have done is opposite of what you said had to be done. This is a partisan impeachment, and it is tearing the country apart. I take this all to mean that Chairman Nadler, or along with the rest of the Democratic caucus, is prepared to continue these entirely partisan, unfair proceedings and traumatize the American people all for a political purpose. I think that's a shame. That's not leadership. That's a sham. And so I asked Mr. Turley, has Chairman Nadler satisfied his three-pronged test for impeachment? With all due respect to Chairman, I do not believe that those, those factors were satisfied. Thank you. And I want to correct something for the record as well. Repeatedly today and other days, Democrats have repeated what was said in the text of the call. Do me a favor, though, and they imply it was against President Biden to, to investigate President Biden. It was not. It was not. In fact, let me read what the transcript says. It says, the President Trump, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot, and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your own wealthy people. It says nothing about the Biden. So please stop referencing those two together, and I yield back. Gentlelady yields back. Ms. Jayapal. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is a deeply grave moment that we find ourselves in. And I thought the threat to our nation was well articulated earlier today by Professor Feldman when you said, if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy, we live in a monarchy, or we live under a dictatorship. My view is that if people cannot depend on the fairness of our elections, then what people are calling divisive today will be absolutely nothing compared to the shredding of our democracy. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.